0: You're listening to Theology for the Rest of Us. You've got tough questions. We'll try to give you easy answers. Now, here's your host, Kenny Ortiz. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this is the Theology for the Rest of Us podcast coming at you From the great metropolis of Minneapolis, Minnesota, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the podcast. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for allowing this podcast to have a voice in your life. This is episode 257, and this is going to be a sort of a part two to the previous episode. In 256, I talked about naturalism, uh, defined naturalism, and talked about the history of naturalism to some extent. Um, talked uh, uh, just uh, about how it's become sort of the prevalent default ideology in a lot of ways in Western culture. Um, And I did talk a little bit or touch a little bit about the potential for some people to uh, unknowingly or unintentionally embrace relatively irrational conclusions if they dogmatically stick to naturalism. But I didn't really refute naturalism much. I just sort of defined it, unpacked it, talked a little bit about its implications, its history, and such. Um, However, in this episode, I really want to take a few minutes out and really talk through naturalism and sort of the flaws of naturalism. And more specifically, I want to cite and quote specific well-known naturalists that are coming to the conclusion that naturalism may not necessarily be a a, an ideology or philosophy that really is ideal uh, when we are examining science now in modern times we have taken naturalism or at least the scientific community has taken naturalism as the as the foundation for science and if you don't have a physical or natural explanation with ample natural and physical evidence then, then you are not credible, and your argument is not credible at all. But that is a relatively recent phenomenon in 1800s or so, and I think, I think we will reach a point in human history sooner rather than later, where we will go away from that, and I'll, and you'll you'll see why by the end of this episode. It's always interesting to me. I hear scientists or people who are claiming to be atheists, even just lay people like you and I. Just regular peeps that say, "Well, I believe in evidence and science, and you Christians just believe in faith." But the reality is, um, I'm not so sure that the that the scientific world, at least the naturalistic uh, scientists that are out there, are really being honest when they evaluate evidence. In, in a large part, I think they are being just as dogmatic, if not worse, in their dogma than many people of faith are. Let me give you a few examples. There's a well-known naturalist, a man by the name of um, uh, Richard Lewinton. I may be mispronouncing his name. I've just read articles about him and by him. Um, he, was, he is a very well-known evolutionary bi- uh, biologist. He's a mathematician. He's a geneticist. Uh, he, he works at Harvard. This guy is a you know, brilliant, well-respected scientist in a lot of ways. He, he said we must embrace naturalism because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Wait a minute, what? He doesn't say we have to embrace naturalism because there's great scientific evidence for naturalism. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say we must embrace naturalism because it is the only consistent and coherent philosophical framework uh, upon which you can stand upon for rational arguments. He doesn't say that either. He, He simply says we must embrace naturalism because if we don't fully embrace it, no matter what, well, then what will happen is there will be a divine foot in the door. Like God will somehow come into the conversation or there'll be something supernatural or spiritual that will bleed into or ooze into the conversation. And we just absolutely cannot have that. That's in essence what he's saying. Well, I would say, well, why not? Why Why would we not want a divine foot in the door if that is the most rational explanation? Now, listen, If if for some reason there's some evidence... That there is not a god if you have some absolute ironclad scientific evidence okay present it and let's dialogue about it however absent of that i think i think the idea of a creator beyond our universe should be on the table i i think it's irrational otherwise do you see the presupposition here the dogma that he's coming to the table with he's not being open-minded about all the potential evidences that are out there including potential evidences for a god or for a creator he is simply saying before we even evaluate the evidence make sure we know that there's no god and that is the presupposition that is the assessment or the conclusion that is already predetermined before the evidence is even being embraced and, and tragically that is sort of the ev- that is sort of the, the ideology or the the viewpoint the perspective that a large chunk of the scientific community currently takes Here's another example of that. A man by the name of Thomas Nagel, he's a professor of both philosophy and law at NYU. He is a very well-known, very well-respected naturalistic philosophy, one of the most well-respected naturalistic philosophers uh, in in our nation today. Um, And several years ago, he said, I'm an evolutionist because I cannot stomach the other options. No, but I think it's a funny statement. It's sort of an honest statement. I appreciate that. I respect the honesty in it. Um, But I think it's a little bit absurd and no doubt more than a little bit irrational to say that the the reason why I choose evolution and the idea that, you know, the the idea of macroevolution that we all evolved from a single cell organism, the, the Darwinian evolutionary theory, the reason why he takes is because he can't stomach the others. In essence, he's saying, I don't like religion. I don't like faith. I don't like the other options. So I'm going to stick with this one. He's not basing it largely on evidence. Now, maybe there's some evidence that's leading to believe that. I'm not saying this man is completely ignoring evidence. I'm just simply saying that there is no doubt some personal bias seeping into his thought processes that are that is inhibiting him from being completely objective or as objective as possible when evaluating the evidence. Does this sound like someone who's being scientific to you? Like this is a man who has who has studied law and philosophy. He is he is he is world renowned in this regard. He has had lots of dialogues publicly and I'm sure privately with evolutionary biologists. He is a well-read, well-known naturalistic philosopher who is basically saying As he studies philosophy, as he has these dialogues, he is refusing to give any credence to anything that would lead to anything other than the naturalistic perspective because he simply can't stomach it. He, He doesn't like the idea of God for whatever reason. Now, he may have valid reasons. Maybe he had some real heartbreaking experience as a child. Maybe he was hurt by some Christians or religious people at some point in his life. Maybe he experienced some tragedy or calamity that was devastating to him and it really shook his his faith and therefore he has this seemingly valid reason to be frustrated with faith or God. And I totally can understand that. I can sympathize. I can have compassion on it. I, re- I really, truly can. And if I ever met Thomas Nagle, I'd, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation with him about that. And I would love to just gently and pastorally demonstrate the love of Christ and listen to whatever's frustrating him. It's clear he has some axe to grind or something that's frustrated him or hurt him that causes him to not stomach religion. And quite frankly, whenever I talk to atheists, this seemingly is always the case. Maybe not 100%, but gosh, 99% probably. Whenever I talk to people who claim to be atheists or they're hostile toward the gospel in some way or another, It is because they experienced something personal, not really because they came across evidence. And it causes people to to take a a viewpoint that I think is somewhat irrational. Now, to Thomas Nagel's credit, this is going to be shocking to you based on what everything I just said about this man, Um, he he wrote a book in the last few years called Mind and Cosmos. Uh, Basically, Thomas Nagel wrote this book because he seemingly has come to the realization that maybe there is a a major flaw in the naturalistic worldview. And this is the subtitle of the book. The subtitle of the book is, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. Did you just hear what I just said? He basically wrote a book about why the neo-Darwinian view, the, the the naturalistic worldview, so to speak, is almost certainly false. It's taken him many years to get there, but to his credit, he's gotten to the point where he's realizing this is probably not accurate. And this is the reason why I say that I'm confident there's going to come a time where naturalism is no longer the, the predominant uh, view taken by the majority of the scientific community, because there are people like Thomas Nagel that are sort of coming to an awakening, and I'm I'm going to mention multiple others in just in just a moment. You see, the reality is that the philosophy of naturalism is largely supported and promoted by 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 scientists that aren't being adequately scientific. Right, good science is evaluating the evidence, and you go down whatever road science takes you to. like I, I often say on the podcast that I want to be faithful to the text. I want to evaluate the Bible honestly and as objectively as possible, and I want to go down whatever theological road that the text takes me. I want to be faithful to what the text actually says. Well, the same ought to be true for scientists. Like you ought to be as honest and as objective and as rational as possible, although we're humans and that isn't always possible, but we want to do it to the best of our ability. And we want to objectively assess the evidence and then go wherever the evidence happens to lead. We don't want to come in with, pre, uh, with pre-existing with suppositions or you know, predetermined conclusions that say, we'll go down any road except these over here and and guys like thomas nagel sort of coming to the conclusion that maybe our our predetermining of eliminating supernatural you know description or supernatural explanations maybe was a, a flawed way to go about it another example is a man named michael denton he's a very well respected well known british physician and biologist he wrote a very well known book in, in in the 80s in 1985 wrote a book called Evolution, a theory in crisis, where he basically was sort of exposing some of the themes or the major problems with the Darwinian worldview. Basically, that, that you know he himself was a naturalist, he was an evolutionary biologist, he was a medical doctor. He he subscribed to this theory, but he also was willing to admit that there's a bunch of cracks in this theory that really were not explained. Um, and then it seems like, in as the years have gone on, he has sort of begun to Begin to see those cracks even more so. Begin to see the flaw in the worldview even more so. In 2013, he wrote a an article uh, that sort of sent some shockwaves through the the naturalistic philosophy world, where he said basically naturalists and scientists need to start being open to intelligent design, which is like a major no no. That's like a heresy in the you know in the in the evolutionary biological world. You would just never say that. And he said basically his reasoning was because. We need to be open to the idea that there is order and intentionality in the universe. He's like, the universe is orderly, particularly the earth. It, it's uniquely suited for life as we know it. And therefore, we ought to be open to the fact that maybe there was a designer that actually intentionally ordered things the way they were. And he, he basically to my knowledge, he never became a Christian. I don't think he's a I don't think I don't think he's a deist. I don't, I don't think, to my knowledge at this point, but he's basically making the point that maybe the the world view that he's he has he has subscribed to all his life isn't as ironclad as maybe some would make it out to be and then three years after that article in 2016 just in the last few years he wrote a second book sort of a sequel and the book is called evolution still a theory in crisis right the original one was evolution a theory in crisis this one is evolution still a theory in crisis. And in essence, he he talks a lot about biology and, and, and the anatomy of humans. He talks about human language and the structure of that. He talks about how this world is orderly and uniquely suited for human life to flourish. And he basically comes to the point that the the Darwinian worldview and the naturalism doesn't account for this or adequately explain this at all and I, I haven't read either one of his books I've just read a lot about his books and I've been what I've read in articles is that his second book the recent one is even more bold than the first one um, and and that he basically is making the point that the world is orderly and we got to at least consider the fact that maybe we're wrong on this naturalism thing that maybe there are supernatural factors at play. When it comes to how the universe came to be this is in essence the the intentional the intelligent design or fine-tuning argument that that things are so orderly and so well done that they couldn't have happened by accident and there needs to be someone that is there needs to be some moral agent or some force that is outside of the universe that was powerful enough to create the universe it's the, it's the watchmaker argument you look at a watch it's perfectly designed you wouldn't assume it happened by accident. You didn't take a bunch of pieces, a couple of pieces of metal and leather, and just toss them up in the air and they just landed as a watch configuration. No, it took a intelligent person to put it together. And the idea is that as you examine the universe and human life, genetics and human language, when you examine these things, you realize that they are so orderly they must have been put together by someone who is really intelligent, actually doing it on purpose. In fact, this is what Stephen Hawking, the famous world-renowned physicist, he actually made similar comments back in the 1970s, uh, Stephen Hawking, thats kind of when he first became famous. Of course, uh, he—he's passed away this year. Um, he is one of—he was one of the most brilliant minds of our era. He was most famous—or uh, made famous—by his his research and study on black holes back in the '70s. That kind of put him on the map. Um, but of course, since then, he's—he's he's done much more since then. Um, he was a big proponent of the expanding universe, which today is. Every, every scientist within the world of cosmology and physics believes that to be true, and they, we all believe that the, the universe is expanding. The universe is everything in the natural realm, but it's, it's getting bigger. Uh, it's kind of this remarkable idea. The first guy to kind of assert that was a guy named uh, Edward Hubble back in the 1920s, um, and it, it has since been proved over and over again by, by other physicists since then. Uh, but but Hawking in the, Stephen Hawking in the 70s was promoting this idea that Edward Hubble, and not all physicists were on board with the idea of the universe expanding, but he was. And he was also a big proponent of the Big Bang, which today seems sort of counter-faith, but at the time it wasn't. Uh, for many years, lots of physicists believed that the, uh, lots of science believed that the world, that the universe was eternal. Um, but it was... You know Einstein and others after Einstein they kind of came to the conclusion that no, the universe actually has a beginning, um, and that actually there are many physicists and Hawking sort of in in that crew that have said hey at some point the entire universe was just like a speck they were all like in one place and there was this massive explosion that spread all the matter that was in that one little speck across you know the. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of of light years across the you know millions and millions of galaxies and trillions and trillions of stars that are in some of those galaxies like those sorts of like, things. That, that all this matter exploded and, it, and has been has ex- spread out and has been spreading out and expanding ever since. Well, Hawking was uh, was one of the biggest one of the, one of the biggest proponents of this. And, and and Hawking early in his career talked much about the idea that. Something must have caused this, like that this matter in this little speck could not just have exploded on his own, that there must have been something that caused it, some force or some agent causing it. Now, some people would say, well, you're talking about God. Hawking never, never went there. He never said that. I would go there, of course, and say God caused this, but, but he, he never went there. But clearly he was making the point and he proved it throughout life, throughout his career that there must be something that is bigger than the universe, or at least it's outside of the universe, something that is more powerful than our universe, or at least powerful enough to create our universe or to assist it to come into creation, um, that must exist. There must be something that transcends our universe that is bigger and stronger than the natural world in which we are in. Well, then by definition, it is it is beyond or transcendent of the natural realm. That is supernatural. Now, in his later years, toward the end end of his life, uh, Stephen Hawking did indeed kind of name what he thought that force was, that agent outside of the universe, and he thought it was gravity itself. That Gravity was this force sort of outside of the universe that then caused the universe to explode and that that opens a whole litany of questions as well what how does this gravity do this how does this force do this and that it's not really explained to be honest with you. but he, the the point is that even hawking said the, the 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 science proves that there's something beyond the natural realm, realm which calls into question the philosophy of naturalism all together. Now, interestingly enough, in his later years Hawking did say that while he thinks gravity could have caused this explosion and that he thinks that the explosion, the big bang, clearly explains and accounts for the creation and the expansion of our universe, but it doesn't account for the formation of stars and galaxies. Like when you study our understanding of the big bang, it it clearly that, that he says it clearly explains how the universe came to be, and while it's why it's still expanding, why is it still in expansion mode, so to speak? But just because it exploded doesn't mean it would automatically form stars and galaxies. That is still a a, a significant question that is is unanswered. This is an exact quote from uh, from Stephen Hawking. He says the Big Bang picture of the universe is an agreement with all obs- uh, observational evidence that we have today. Nevertheless, it leaves a number of important questions unanswered mainly the origins of stars and galaxies and so ultimately even someone like Stephen Hawking who was sort of not wanting to give credit to a, a intelligent creator or a god uh, even himself would have to say our best our best explanations still leave massive questions like how do galaxies even form like our current science doesn't account for that outside of something that's outside of our natural realm. Again, it calls into question the entire philosophy of naturalism. The, the other element that I think is important to note is that the more we learn about science, the more we realize that we cannot explain. Like, the more we learn, the more ignorant we realize we actually are. Even about things that we have ample evidence, ample understanding about, there's still elements where we are completely ignorant. I recently heard Neil deGrasse Tyson, who I'm going to talk more about in future episodes because he's become one of my favorite guys. I just read a book by him, and I really like the way he he kind of explains things. Um, he obviously he's not a Christian. He he is a naturalist in his own right, uh, but he said something that I thought was really interesting. He said to be a scientist is to live on the frontier of of ignorance and knowledge. Is the idea that, and he said, uh, if you're if you're not okay with us being ignorant, you're not ever going to be okay with being a scientist. Because to be a scientist is to recognize we are grossly and massively ignorant about way more than we realize. And, and in fact, the more we learn, the more ignorant we actually realize that we are. Our level of ignorance is, is, is only limited by actually what we learn throughout the course of the centuries, you know, being led by brilliant men like the Einsteins and the Hubble's and the, the Hawking's and the Tyson's and the others out there. One example of this is the is the idea of dark matter or dark energy. This is sort of a code word. Dark energy is a made-up word. Basically, there's this energy force in the universe. We have no clue where it comes from, what it is, but in essence, it, there's this random force that is literally holding the entire universe together. That's it. That's what it's doing. We have no idea what it is, where it comes from, we can't describe it. We can't explain it. And the reality is that the most logical and most rational explanation may be that it's sourced from something outside of our universe. But of course, that would deny naturalism. So we can't even entertain that as a plausible I- idea. This this dark energy, this unknown force, we have no clue what it is, uh, supposedly, is also the source of about 85% of all of the gravity in the entire universe. Like 15% of all the gravity in the universe, we can kind of figure out where it comes from, we know the source of that. But 85% of it, we, we have no idea, other than it's attached to or sourced somehow from this unknown force that also, by the way, happens to be holding everything together perfectly. Every molecule and atom and everything in the entire universe seemingly is being held together by this thing that we have no idea, we can't describe it, so we call it dark energy. It's sort of a code word made up. Well, the Bible tells us in Colossians that Jesus holds all things together. Maybe, maybe if we considered a supernatural approach, we could find a more rational understanding of it. But of course, we wouldn't ever do that. That's at least what the scientific naturalistic perspective would be. Also, there is an, another unknown force. We, we don't know what this one is either. That is causing the universe to continue to accelerate Right so the big bang happens the universe is expanding 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 and and it's as it's expanding the rate of its expansion is growing so it's expanding whatever so many you know blank 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 light years or uni- or, or inches or whatever it is whatever the units by which we measure the distance a- across the universe it's expanding the universe is getting bigger and grander But yet, day by day, from an Earth perspective, the rate at which it's getting bigger today is faster than the rate it was getting bigger yesterday. Well, there's some unknown force causing this. And if you read scientists that that are willing to entertain things like intelligent design, they begin to come up with equations and understandings and explanations that begin to say, hey, The most rational explanation for this is something supernatural. There is something outside of our universe, something that transcends our universe, something that is bigger than our universe that has the ability to sort of influence our universe and impact what's going on in the natural world. And that unknown force is the thing that is causing the universe to speed up the rate of its expansion. But of course, if you're a naturalist, you would never entertain that. And therefore, you just say, well, it's dark energy or it's unknown Maybe one day we'll see it. This is sort of, again, it's just sort of irrational. Uh, David Brooks, he's uh, you know the world, the, the well, the well-renowned New York Times journalist, um, has been has sort of been observing this and having lots of conversations with scientists, and he said something recently, or a few years ago, that I thought was an interesting quote. And to my knowledge, he is not a Christian and was not a Christian when he said this. There's a rumor that he became a Christian recently, but if that's true, he said this quote before he became a Christian. He, He said, there is a scientific revolution going on that will undermine naturalism, not faith in God, which is remarkable, right? If you look at the world of physics and cosmology and astronomy, pretty much from the early 1900s, particularly from the work of Edward Hubble in the 1920s on, you you really see this revolution in our understanding of the cosmos. And it really does undermine naturalism. It undermines the secular worldview. It does not undermine the idea of a god or an intelligent creator of some sort. Some people would say, they would assume, oh, the more you learn about science, the more it proves there's not a God. But what we're actually learning, as David Brooks has wisely stated, we're actually seeing the opposite. He, he also said this. He says, naturalism is dead, but the only people who don't know it are the naturalists. I think that's a pretty ironic and pretty potent statement from David Brooks. Let me give you one other example of a world-renowned atheistic philosopher that had a change of heart uh, toward the end of his life, a man by the name of Anthony Flew, who was a, a very well-known, well-respected uh, British writer. He was a, a prolific writer, teacher, uh, again, very well, well-known, well-respected. Um, he was a naturalistic philosopher and a big proponent of of naturalistic philosophy and was really against the idea of deism, against the idea of a god. Was a was was pretty adamantly against the idea of a creator of any kind, and was adamantly against the idea of allowing any sort of religious or supernatural ideology to seep into the uh, the world of science or the community of science. However, toward the end of his life. He began to have a significant shift in his thought processes, and he wrote a book toward the end of his life called There Is a God, and the subtitle of that book is How the World's Most Notorious Atheist Changed His Mind. Now, to my knowledge, Flew never became a Christian. He just became a deist. I don't think he ever embraced the God of the Bible, although we don't know what he did, obviously, in the closing moments of his life. Um, but he did embrace the idea of an intelligent designer or a creator of the universe of some sort. And he wrote this book about why he came to that conclusion. It's called There Is a God. You can get it on Amazon. It's a best-selling book. Uh, it was often labeled by many atheists as the, one, of the, one of their most hated books because many of atheists were frustrated that this sort of notorious atheist, this world-renowned, brilliant, naturalistic philosopher has sort of turned on them. And in the book, and I haven't read the whole thing, I've skimmed chunks of it, in the book, he talks about the three biggest questions that the naturalistic or atheistic worldview cannot and never will be able to answer. And that basically led him to the idea that there's only one coherent worldview that actually gives us the answers that we want and need, and that is the idea of a a God or a creator of some sort. The, The first question he asked was this, why is there something? Right? like The naturalistic worldview is that nothing exploded into something and that all the matter in the universe exploded but at one point was nothing and then it evolved over billions of years and then earth evolved and it just so happened by chance to become the perfect conditions for life uh, and if not, there would have been no life but then there was no life even though the conditions on earth were perfect for life because it just accidentally evolved into that but then life spontaneously appeared. In the form of a simple single cell organism, and then that single single cell organism then evolved eventually into complex animals and eventually humans. But in essence, that this complex universe that is orderly and and in human beings and creatures on this planet Earth that is perfectly fine tuned, all happened by accident. But even if you're willing to accept that argument that it happened by accident, you have to then be willing to take the take the idea or accept or embrace that all this matter came from nothing that nothing exploded into something huh it just that's the best you can do that's the best you can come up with brilliant people saying that this is how it went how it came about friends this is this is simply irrational and and anthony flew came to the conclusion in later years after decades of study and reading and dialoguing he came to the conclusion that this just doesn't make sense And the reality is there are many naturalists like him that are starting to come to the realization. As David Brooks said, there is a scientific revolution going on and it will continue. And in the coming decades, it will continue to undermine not the belief in God. It will continue to undermine the philosophy of naturalism. And to that I say, praise be to God. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast hope it was helpful and insightful as you begin to grapple and study through things like naturalism and some of the related topics. If you have any questions about anything I said or need clarity, I'd love to hear from you. Shoot me an email. The email address is heyortiz at com. That's H-E-Y-O-R-T-I-Z at theologyfortherestofus.com. Also, if you have a question or a topic that you want me to address in a future episode of the podcast, even if it's unrelated to anything I said in this episode i'd love to hear from you feel free to email me at that same address hey make sure you never miss an episode of the podcast make sure you're subscribed and your apple itunes player or whatever your favorite podcast player happens to be that'll guarantee that every episode gets delivered directly to your device as soon as they go live and while you're there in your app make sure you leave a rating or review those are a big big help to the show Thanks again for listening. I'm Kenny Ortiz, and this has been Theology for the Rest of Us.